In 2000, director Cameron Crowe and star Patrick Fugit gave the world an endearing coming-of-age story that dives into the world of the rock star. In 2021, we finish our walk through Heaven Hill's Bottom Shelf 100 Proofers. The film is almost famous. The whiskey is T.W. Samuel's Bottled and Bond. And we'll review them both. This is The Film and Whiskey Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we are looking at the 2000 film, Almost Famous. Uh, are you sure that we are? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, quick reminder for those of you who have been rolling with the Film and Whiskey Podcast for over a year now. Uh, we were going to do this movie last season, in season three, and I found out that somehow, some way. Brad got his hands on a copy of the uh, the director's, director's cut, cut of this movie, which is like two hours and 45 minutes long. And right before we went to record, I was like, hey, man, you know, what were your general thoughts on the movie? And he was like, it was pretty good. Uh, but I just I thought it was like 45 minutes too long. And I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> which one did you see? And he's like the three hour version. Why did this movie need to be three hours long? Yeah. OK. So uh, we watched two different versions of the movie. And. I, we kind of made the uh, the call at that point that because it was Brad's first time seeing the movie, I didn't want his first impressions of the movie to carry over into the episode. We had essentially watched two completely different films. So we just said, like, we'll give it a year. We'll come back to it next year. We'll try again. So, Brad, this is take two for you watching Almost Famous, but it's actually take one of you watching the actual movie. And I, I just want Film and Whiskey Nation to know that Bob literally, like, his eye almost popped out of the socket. He was so mad. <laughs> and it wasn't even that I was mad at you. I think, well, no, no. partially I was, because I was like, my dude, like, could you look up the IMDb? Could you just see how long? Bro, because when, when, right when you showed Google me, like, right the now. link, when you, you sent me, like, the thumbnail of the version you watched, and, like, right at the top of it, it said, unedited director's cut. And I was like, dude, like, come on, man. It's right no. there. No, listen, man, you Google the the time and it literally says two hours and 43 minutes. Like you just Google almost famous runtime and it says two hours and 43 minutes. So I was like, man, I guess it's just a really long freaking movie. And it sure was. So, Brad, it, we, we took mercy was, on you man. and we let you watch the two hour cut this time. Yeah. I mean, it was it, it's a movie. It, it sure it is. does stuff. Mm. It's feckin awesome. It's feckin <laughs> well, Brad, we we uh, are not alone today to talk about Almost Famous. Uh, we needed a mediator. I, I thought that there was just a. I thought there was a ghost just laughing. Just in the background. a disembodied voice cackling in the background. Yeah. So we needed a mediator between our two. What I assume will be extreme poles of thought on this movie, and we're bringing back our friend Perry Ritter, host of This Is My Bourbon podcast, and apparently our resident rock movie critic, because. He joined us last season for This Is Spinal Tap. He's back for Almost Famous. Perry, how you doing, man? I'm a golden god. <laughs> That's right you are. <laughs> how do I know when the acid's kicked in? <laughs> Bob, Brad, I'm so happy to be back with you guys. This is just, I, I have not seen Almost Famous in a couple of years, 
And um, watching through it again, it left me a little bit. Uh, I, I've got some things I want to talk about with oh. it, but uh, uh, I'm hoping I'm hoping that they're not so extreme one way or another that I can actually mediate between you guys. Uh, yeah. But all that being said, I do like being the the resident rock movie guy. I guess. Can I make a request to come back next season for that thing you do? Oh, oh, my man! One of my favorite I, movies of all time. I just watched you know it what? like three weeks ago. Such a it's, such a fun I, movie. I'm gonna make a promise without even letting Bob interject. <laughs> yes, yes, you can. You are you are invited right now, Harry. <laughs> Fantastic. Damn, I'm so excited for that thing you do now. Do we really still have to talk about Almost Famous? I, I could I could probably talk about that thing you do. Let's just, just segue. Let's just, I'll still release it. I'll still release it as Almost Famous, and we'll just talk about that thing you do. <laughs> that Almost Famous time. thing you do. Oh, man. All right, so oh, Perry's going to join us next season for That Thing You Do, but until we get there, we still have a movie to talk about today, and that is Cameron Crowe's Almost Famous Brad, I'm still going to proceed forward with Brad Explains under the assumption that this was your first time seeing the movie. So (laughs) I'm excited to hear your general thoughts on the movie. I really love this movie. And you have 60 seconds on the clock, sir, to explain to our listeners the plot of this movie that you have just seen for the first time. So can you break down Almost Famous? I don't know if I can. It's like a three-hour movie, Bob. (laughs) Holy cow. It's like pretty much like Gone with the Wind. Right. Welcome to the Snyder Cut review, everybody. I, uh, right? <laughs> I will say, if anybody ever wants to know why we do a 60-second review, go back and listen to my Brad Explains on Gone with the Wind, and you will know why. Do you know how long it was? I remember this because I edit the episodes. Do you know how long Brad Explains? Oh, it was like, it was like nine yeah, minutes. Yeah, it was eight dude. minutes long, dude. <laughs> I remember I remember like getting to the point where I was muttering swear words when you were like, and that takes us up to intermission. Yep. <laughs> hey, not my fault, man. All right, dude. Let's break down Almost Famous. One minute and go. Almost Famous is about a young boy named William Miller who is a high school senior, but he's only 15 years old. And his passion in life is to become a rock journalist. He he wants to cover the rock and roll scene. He's given some advice um, by Lloyd Bangs, something Lester, or other. Lester Bangs. Lester. Lester Bangs. Lester Bangs. Worst name in the world. <laughs> and he gets sent off to follow this band called Stillwater. And he becomes friends with them. He hangs out with um, some groupies called the Band-Aids. Um, And one of them is named Penny Lane. He falls in love with her. She's in love with the lead guitarist who's better than everyone else in the band. There's drama. There's fighting. There's sex. Uh, These girls have sex with a minor, but we're just going to gloss over that. It's okay. Uh, Ten seconds. I think we should talk about it. (laughs) He covers the band, and it's he gets it on the cover of the Rolling Stones, guys. All right. It's huge. And time. Brad, always working those references to sex with minors into his Brad explained somehow. I don't know why. <laughs> Whoa. Hey, I'm just pointing out the problematic things in uh, these movies. We literally right? just recorded yeah, that... uh, an episode that will come out in two weeks 
earlier today for the Royal Tenenbaums. And Brad spent a considerable chunk of Brad Explains talking about the incestual relationship there. So, yeah, what's going on with that? I don't know, man. I'm uh, still not okay with it. We are marathoning movies about sexual deviance today. So, (laughs) all right. Well, I'm out. (laughs) So great to have you, Perry. Thanks for coming on. (laughs) So before we jump into talking about the movie itself, uh, Brad, I, I just have to ask you some questions. I got to put you on the hot seat for a second, because for being one of my best friends, you are still mm-hmm. an enigma to me and uh, yeah. a, a riddle that cannot be cracked. And I think back to early, early on in our podcast, when we were trying to come up for ideas for bonus episodes for our top five series. Bonus episodes. And I floated an idea out to you like, hey, what if we do top five uses of classic rock in movies? And I was like, oh, there's yeah. so many great classic rock songs. And I was thinking about Almost Famous. And um, and you were like, dude, I don't know if I could name five classic rock songs outside of the Beatles. And you like just said, basically, you didn't grow up listening to classic rock. And everything I knew about you told me that you listened to nothing but classic rock. You just seemed like the kind of guy who would have a very strong foundation in the world of classic rock. I. I don't mean to like throw everything you said under the bus, but like I did grow up listening to Queen and Led Zeppelin oh. and all of that. Well, I will say you told so, me you couldn't name five classic rock songs when we when we tried this concept like a year ago. I so my musical background, since that's what we're getting into for a second here. Uh, I, yes, I grew up listening to the Beatles. They're hands down my favorite band of all time. I think they are the greatest band of all time. Um, but no, man, I, I grew up, if you're in the Cleveland area, you'll know what I'm talking about, but, uh, magic 105.7 was my jam. Like that, that is pretty much all I listened to when I was in the car with my dad. Once I turned 16 and had my own car. So that was primarily hits from the sixties and seventies. Um, a little bit from the eighties as well, especially with queen. But yeah, that that is my genre. That's my era. So yeah, Eagles, um, CCR, uh, the Beatles, like like all of the bands from that era. Th- that's my kind of go to. So I, I don't know if that answers your question anyway, Bob. But but there you have there it. There it is. All right. Well, I I actually really appreciate that reminder that you did listen to classic rock growing up. Maybe I misunderstood you. I thought you were going to come into this like, who's Led Zeppelin? So this is actually really nice that we don't have to go through that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm I'm glad that we don't have to go through that. I mean, I'm not like Vic. Uh, you know, I'm not just like following these bands around and like obsessed with them. But, you know, I know most of their hits. <laughs> so, Perry, I, I know that you're like you're a guitar player. You very clearly have a a base of knowledge around this stuff like just fill me in a little bit more. Like what what is your musical background? What did you grow up listening to? Was it this kind of stuff? Was it classic rock from the 70s? Was it something else? My my dad, who is also my source for my love of whiskey uh, and bourbon in particular, also really was the person that introduced me to most of the the music that formed who I am as a music fan now. Um, early on, I mean, he he would always be listening to... I mean, really like the classic rock station here in, in Lexington if I was in the car with him. He's a big Rolling Stones fan. Uh, the Who, absolutely. Uh, Bruce Springsteen is one that he still holds very near and dear to his heart. So I always had this kind of sense of not just 
the the rock and roll side of things, but also the the storyteller and the singer songwriter side of of music as well. And that's the the music that I very much latched onto early on in my my musical development. And that also was a product of of listening to what I guess would be considered adult contemporary in the late nineties, early two thousands, uh, with Dave Matthews band and artists like John Mayer and two those those two really I hold I would say in, in the highest regard in terms of uh, my my musical inspiration I guess and uh, the older I got the more I started listening to and and trying to play and emulate some of these uh, classic rock musicians and, and and classic guitar players and and we kind of talked about this too with with Spinal Tap but but. There is such a, there's like this aura of heightened godliness almost for these bands from this era that, uh, that Almost Famous focuses on that I don't, I don't necessarily have. And I know that that almost sounds like sacrilege, especially when you're talking about bands like Black Sabbath and Zeppelin. And I mean, don't get me wrong. I love Led Zeppelin. Um, but there's, I don't know, I don't have that affinity that a lot of people do. And I think that that is largely a product of the fact that I'm a millennial. Um, this is all to say that I, I, felt, I, I felt connected to these bands that they mentioned and the, the artists that they uh, talked about during this movie and a lot of the music that they played throughout it. Uh, but I, I don't know, I've, I, I gotta be honest, and this is an early, early reaction to this movie... I don't know if they fully did it justice. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Perry, I'm actually, I'm kind of in a similar place with you in this fact that like one of my struggles with this movie is like the legendary godlike status that they give these rock stars. And I just, I kind of struggle with that. I've never understood it. I like, I love these people's music, but when you go back and watch video of like, you know, the Beatles playing live and like how the fans react to them, it's just something that I've never fully understood, appreciated. I like, I honestly think it's kind of silly. And so watching this movie mm. kind of like drew out some of those thoughts for me, especially in like the concert scenes when. I don't know when people are flipping out about these musicians. I just, I've never understood it. And I don't think I ever am going to understand it. There is an art of fabrication and immersiveness that comes with movie production. Right. I mean, that that's just, you know, what makes good movies into great movies and great movies into masterpieces that, you feel like it's a real lived-in world and you feel like it's a place that you could easily transport yourself to and not feel out of place. There's something about the world of Almost Famous and I did find myself, especially during that scene, where they had that little montage of songs when they're on stage, when Stillwater's on stage mm-hmm. and the fans are screaming at them from the front row. I don't know if that's necessarily what would have been the case during this time. I mean, this is supposed to be slightly based off of a, a real-life band, but also they have, you know, hinges of, of something like Almond Brothers? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. that, doesn't, that doesn't scream something that the Almond Brothers would have had present at their, their shows. They were very much Southern rock. They were very much early 
uh, predications of, of, you know, the, the jam band movement as well. And so I, I don't know. It just, it felt like they were trying to lift up, like Cameron Crowe was trying to lift up this notion of the rock star to an almost unbelievable degree. Mm. Well, so I want to speak to that too, because I, I kind of agree with you guys. I kind of disagree because I think that the like deification of rock stars, you know, especially like in the 1990s when people were first starting to get really nostalgic for the 70s and like, oh, uh, you know, why is Mm. why is Mm -hmm. grunge such a big thing when we had this in the 70s? Like, I think that that deification has always been overblown. Right. And like this idea that just because the Stones made Exile on Main Street, that Exile on Main Street doesn't have any bad songs on it which is just objectively untrue. Do you know what I mean? Like there, there are certain things that I think we have just put on such a pedestal, but I think what the movie itself does really well is showing the extent to which these guys are just like overgrown man, child or man, children. Yeah. Yeah, and, absolutely. And like super petty. And, you know, Jeff Beebe, the lead singer played by Jason Lee is, is constantly jealous of Russell Hammond, the guitarist. And, you know, you've got like the one, the drummer that doesn't say anything, the whole movie, like there are definitely like some spinal tappy elements here that Crow is playing with. Um, But I think he does a pretty good job of showing that even though the fans have this weird dynamic built into the way they worship these guys, that like William's able to see right through it immediately. Like these guys are less mature than me and I'm 15 years old. You know, it, I, I think that brings up a really good point too, that we are meant to see most of this movie through the eyes of William. And because he is so in a, in a way innocent, but at the same time, he seems so world weary and so wise that he almost is able to cut through a lot of that BS and, and, and able to see the truth. And you wouldn't expect that from this 15 year old, but he's a 15 year old who's a senior in high school. Right. And, you know, has a very clear trajectory of what he wants to do with his life. But I, uh, I it's, it's that old soul character that, you know, I, I think makes movies like this so compelling, even if the storytelling is not the, the most engaging or the most exciting there's just it's so funny because it's like all of the pieces of this movie should work but when you put them together it's just like the jagged edge doesn't line up with the round corner Mm -hmm. of the the puzzle and i don't know if it's cameron crowe's fault i don't know if it's i mean part of it does seem to be uh, the the actors' performances, but that's a mm. that's a conversation for later down the road. But I I found myself on this viewing, picking apart this movie to a level that I almost wasn't expecting. Well, let me let me go back just a second, and I want to say like I do think that that dynamic of William as like the fifteen year old being the voice of reason and the absurdity of that, I think that's best exemplified in the way that. Patrick Fugit as William interacts with Kate Hudson's character, Penny, Mm -hmm. and the fact that she keeps using this language of like the real world and how she's acknowledging that we we don't exist in the real world. We exist in this weird bubble of celebrity and the cult of rock and roll. And she keeps saying, like, if you talk to me like that in the real world and at some point, William just says, when and where does this real world occur? Like, what do you keep yeah. talking about the real world? Like, we're in the real yeah. world. You guys are just concocting this fantasy for yourselves that is just 
ridiculous and absurd. And I do think the movie really does that well. If nothing else, I think it it does a very good job of kind of poking holes in the like this veneer of godliness uh, that these rock stars have. But guys, I do agree with you about a lot of what you're saying about the quality of the movie and, and how it hits you. Before we get too deep into the analysis portion, I feel like we got to pull back a little bit, talk about, you know, Brad, <laughs> Brad, basically, you know, Brad broke down the plot here, but this is very loosely based on Cameron Crowe's own experience. Perry, you brought up the Allman Brothers. Crow at a very young age was kind of embedded like like a war journalist with the Allman Brothers on the road writing for Rolling Stone. Yeah. So this mm-hmm. and with Led Zeppelin for a while. So this was like, you know, these are his memories that he is comedically telling on film. And one thing that you guys were talking earlier about how this doesn't it doesn't seem to accurately depict the rock and roll lifestyle. I think if this movie has a fatal flaw, it's that Cameron Crowe looks at the rock and roll days the same way that like Frank Capra looks at Bedford Falls in It's a Wonderful Life. Like it is it is so nostalgic and it's so ultimately it's sweet. It's a very sweet movie. And I think like if you're in the mood for something that has a lot of charm and is very good hearted and very sweet, then this movie can really work for you. But I also don't think it really depicts the rock and roll lifestyle in like these guys were were severely addicted to drugs and strung out and ODing. And like you don't yeah. see any of that. Like there's a little bit of drug use and you see a little bit of it in the fallout of, you know, Penny Lane, Kate Hudson's character overdosing at one point. But for the most part, that stuff never touches this band. It all kind of stays on the periphery. And I think, you know, as we kind of grapple with the movie itself, Brad, I want to hear from you about Cameron Crowe as a writer, Cameron Crowe as a director. Do you think that he made the movie too sweet? I don't know if it's necessarily too sweet. I I think that it's just too clunky overall. That like there are certain parts of this film that are just smooth and work and and they're great. Honestly, almost any scene with Frances McDormand in it, I feel like her performance like elevates the scenes that she is in. Unfortunately, there are not a lot of great actors in this movie outside of her. <laughs> and so I just feel like the dialogue is so poorly written in so many parts of the movie that, I mean, you have Zoe Deschanel in one of the worst performances I I've, I think I have ever seen her give. I think and, it is. And I like her. I like Zoe Deschanel, <laughs> but it's, it's just not good. Wow. And, and, you know, granted, she was a lot younger then, but. There's so much dialogue in this movie that I just wanted to like gouge my eyes out that the the way they talk to each other just doesn't feel real in any way, shape or form. Yeah, I will say like so many of these scenes build to a punchline or build to a gag. It it seems like these are caricatures at every turn of the movie. And there is like some scenes where they really do flesh them out and give them humanity. And, Mm. you know, I Mm -hmm. I, I'll leave Zoe Deschanel alone because like her character is very minor, but like. I think Kate Hudson is phenomenal in this movie. I think the way that they leave the camera yeah. on her face as she reacts to things that are like deeply hurting her is great. I think Billy Crudup as Russell Hammond is next level out of this world in this movie. I think Patrick Fugit is great in this movie. But I think the thing that really pisses me off is that so often they use even the main characters like Russell as a gag to get a, a brief laugh with you know, the I'm a golden god scene is really funny and it's iconic now, but he's a buffoon and he's a caricature. I am a 
And you can tell Rolling Stone magazine that my last words were I'm on drugs. Yeah! Russell, I think we should work on those last words. Okay. Oh, I got it. 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 This is better. Last words. I dig music. I'm on drugs! And then, like, you have the scene where Kate Hudson overdoses, and they, like, try to shoehorn in this really weird subplot of, like, William's going to get his first kiss from a woman who's barely conscious. And then he kisses her, and the joke is that she goes, hmm, and then she passes out. Some of the gags really land, and I do think this is a very funny movie when it works. Some of them just don't work at all. I don't know if I fully... Agree with you, Bob. I, I I have some issues with the notion of this being a funny movie. I do fully believe that there are lighthearted moments. Um, I do think that there are moments where it feels like they are trying to make the audience feel like the these characters are lost in a world that doesn't fully know what to do with them and they don't know what to do with the world around them. And that in and of itself leads to humor. But that scene where William is getting his first kiss and is expressing his love to a woman who is far, far away from where she should be to be able to react to that doesn't feel humorous to me. It almost feels harassment. Yeah, no, for sure. That, and that, yes. I think that's what I'm trying to say is like, the, A, that scene didn't need a gag because it's supposed to be the dramatic point of the movie. And B, like, you know, watching it 20 years on now, I'm like, oh my gosh, like this is very, yeah. you're undermining what you want the character of William to be, which is like this innocent, morally upright person in a world filled with just dicks. Yeah, and and he doesn't he doesn't learn anything from it. And I know that it's you know into the meat of the the third act almost, but it, it just feels like such an out of place part of this movie. And Brad, I have to agree with you too. It is so clunky. And there are so many parts of it where you're just going, did they really need to do that? Is that really the best decision that they could have made with writing this movie? The entire overdose scene, I think, is what has struck the biggest nerve with me. That he, that William is so casual in his response. Yes, mm. he does call the front desk and ask for, the, for a doctor. But then afterwards, he's like, okay, let's stay awake. Come on. Don't fall asleep. Hey, by the way, I love you. And it just, it doesn't seem like a real reaction. I think that there is so much dialogue and so many situations that are written in this movie that feel so fantastical that sure, maybe they are written through the, the lens of the, the rock and roll era of the seventies, but it's so, it's so saccharine that it feels inauthentic. 
Yeah, I mean, with that scene, I feel like you just change two things and it becomes a meaningful, important scene. Yeah, absolutely. You have him kiss her on the forehead. And then when he is sitting there watching her puke her entire stomach out, you don't have him smile creepily, falling in love with her. And you don't play play Stevie Wonder, my Sharia Moore. And that was the moment in the movie where I was like, okay, I can see how this could really turn someone off from watching this. Because we get the point, Cameron Crowe. Like, we we get what you're trying to do. You're trying to juxtapose... Where William should be in life with where he is now. Like he should be at his graduation. He's in a hotel room with the groupie saving her life while she gets her stomach pumped. And yes, he's in love with her, but you don't need to make an ironic use of my Sherry Amore because it like it it seemed offensive and it seemed insulting to it the did. character of Penny yep. that they would even do that in her lowest moment. Yeah, a hundred percent. I think another like just this is just one small thing of the writing where I'm like, this is the worst thing ever. Why <laughs> in the world did he call them the Band-Aids? That, uh, the the first time I watched the movie, that was three hours long. I hated that. The second time I watched the movie, I'm like, I just like, I don't know why, but I recoil at the oh, idea of the cheesiness of the, the name. You mean, why did Cameron Crowe call them that? Yeah. Oh, okay. oh, okay. I thought you were talking about William. I was like, that was built into the movie. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, why did he write it in that they were named... The band-aids. Uh, I, like, I just hate the cheesiness. Like, it feels like he took two seconds to be like, huh, yeah, it's they, they they aid the band, but they're also like a band-aid on the bad stuff. So we'll call them the band-aids. Yeah. I, I hate that. All right, listen, I, I gotta I gotta lazy. stem I gotta nip this in the bud a little bit. Like we're we're getting off the rails <laughs> just shitting on this movie now. So like let me say this. I actually really, really like this movie. I like it more than both of you do. Um and <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Bob. <laughs> and at the same time, at the same time, I agree that it's a flawed movie. But before we go to break, I do think we need to like n- hammer out some of this, uh, our reactions to the cast, because wh- regardless of what you think of their performances, Brad, this might be one of the best casts ever assembled. Like if you just go through the IMDb cast list for this movie, it is insane. How many people either became super famous after this movie yeah. You know, uh, or we're just in bit parts like, all right, so you've got Billy Crudup, you've got Patrick Fugit, you've got Kate Hudson at the top, Francis McDormand, Jason Lee, Zoe Deschanel, you've got Anna Paquin, who is an Oscar winner, you've got Feruza Balk, who is not lo- no longer famous, but was in the moment, you've got Philip Seymour Hoffman, an all-time great actor, Jimmy Fallon, you've got Bijou Phillips, and then you go like down into the bit parts, you're talking like Rain Wilson, You've got Jay Baruchel. Mark Marin shows up for a hot second. Yep. You got a cameo from Peter Frampton in there. Like th- Eric Stone Street point, from Eric Stone Street's in there as a hotel yeah. clerk. Yeah. At every scene, I was like, oh my gosh, like they blew up 10 years later. It's pretty insane. Whoever did the casting for this movie uh, was really, really onto something here. Bob, I'm not going to lie. This this cast list is full of like B and C list stars. Oh, I don't I don't agree with <laughs> yeah, that at all. Dude, there's come only, on. I don't there's agree with that few, at all. No, there's only a few people on here that become like legit stars or I, I mean, Frances McDormand had already won her Oscar for Fargo. So, uh, you know, I just as soon as you said that, I'm like, Bob, I don't know what you're talking about, man. Nobody on here is like 
super well known in the public other than somebody like Zoe Deschanel because she had a huge show like New Girl. Uh, you don't think Eric Stone Street is well known or Rain Wilson is I well have, known? I have no idea who Eric Stone Street he is. He was like one of the leads he's, on Modern he's Family. From like Modern one Family. Of the, one of the longest running sitcoms of all time. A uh, show I've never watched in my life. All right, but just because you don't know him doesn't mean he's not <laughs> popular or famous. Jason Lee was... I'm just saying, I've never heard of him. Jason Lee was My Name is Earl. You have Mark Marin, who has one of the most successful podcasts of all time. One of in the history. best, Yeah, and one of the best stand-up comedians of, of all time. I, there's, I, I think it's slightly unfair to say that this is a group of B and C list performers. I mean, th- these are people that I think are now cultural touchstones in the the early 21st century that we we definitely have to give some accreditation yeah, Perry. to you. The Perry pendulum is swinging back to my <laughs> side now, baby. <laughs> Look, man, all I got to say is if we're talking about movies, there is almost nobody in this movie in the second tier of list that is famous in any way. Like you sure, could they say, have some TV Brad, shows. you could say they are almost famous. Hey, God, you, hey. Said you said it. Yeah. You said it. Hey, it you you nailed it. We brought it back around, guys. <laughs> I want to say I want to say something about one member of this cast, though, and it it is the I think the worst performance and the one character that completely takes me out of the movie. Rain Wilson. Nope, Jimmy Fallon. No, oh, Jimmy Fallon too. Yeah, Jimmy Jimmy Fallon is so bad in this movie and gives such a a lackluster performance that you feel it, i like there that scene where he's talking about moving them onto the plane and how they need to sell records and how they can sell out shows and then get played on the radio and all this stuff he stays in like his ex right but that's a moment mm. where he could clearly be walking around the room, rallying the troops and bringing people to attention and giving them energy. And it's just, it's such a missed moment mm. with that character that feels like he was brought on because he was on SNL at the time, yeah. right? It's it's such, and I know that he's now the the host of The Tonight Show, regardless of how popular that is, but he is now a heavy figure in, in our, our pop culture, and he doesn't feel like Jimmy Fallon, who's the host of The Tonight Show, and also had a really good part in, in Almost Famous. It just feels like Jimmy didn't know what the heck he was doing yeah. during, yeah. during his time Very. on Almost Famous. I was going to uh, open our second half of the podcast with an award that I hope to give out as often as possible, (laughs) but Jimmy Fallon was going to receive and will receive my Why the Hell Is He In This Movie award. I think I think we already got to the bottom of that one, but uh, I I think we did. <laughs> sorry, Listen, no, sorry, Brad. No arguments here, man. Like, uh, I, for me, the performance that takes me out of the movie the most is Rain Wilson, and he is like he has like five lines, but he is yeah. one of the editors of Rolling Stone. And my favorite my favorite moment because it's so bad is when uh, when William first goes back to San Francisco and turns in his notes and uh-huh. they're like reviewing. And Rain Wilson's just like, mm, dark, lively. I like, hate that so much. <laughs> it's so cringy and uncomfortable. Yep. Ugh. And if it was in the office, it would literally be perfect. 
All right, so here's my plan for the rest of the episode. We need to break. We need to drink this whiskey. I am going to force you guys to talk about positive things about this movie when we come back. So let's get you liquored up a little bit. <laughs> what do you guys say we try this T.W. Samuels? All right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so today we are checking out T.W. Samuel's Bottled in Bond. Brad, this is a, obviously, 100-proof bourbon from the Heaven Hill Corporation. We have tried two of their other, I guess three of their other Bottled in Bond products that are in this kind of, like, bottom shelf. It, people in the know really love them, and that would be J.W. Dant, which we just had a few weeks ago, J.T.S. Brown, which we tried last season, and then if you move into corn whiskey, they've got mellow corn as well, but we don't speak of that on this podcast. Oh, that's a shame. <laughs> Bro, we don't like Mellow Corn at all. Uh, that's a real shame. Yeah, well, so is your take on this movie. So, <laughs> <laughs> All right. So today we're we're kind of rounding things out with T.W. Samuels. This is in some ways my favorite one of all of them because it's it's the cheapest. It is somehow the cheapest one. If you go to Kentucky and, and look for this on the shelf, you will almost only find it in the 1.75 liter size or what we call a handle. And for a handle of this, Brad, I'll give away the price now. It is $20.99 for a handle of this. So this has become my go-to cocktail uh, bourbon because I like a little bit higher proof in my cocktails. I like something that can stand up to the dilution. It's been a long time since I've tried this neat, man. Uh, so I have no idea what this tastes like, but I got to tell you, having poured this out, it is a lot more uh, enticing on the nose than I might have been expecting. Yeah, I, I mean, as I get into the aroma of this bad boy, it, it's a little bit hot up front, but it kind of has like this dusty corn type feel to it um, that has like a little bit of sweetness, a little bit of caramel going on as well. So like I like I don't know if you guys have ever like shucked fresh corn like right off of the stalk, mm -hmm. but it, it almost is like dusty and like I feel like that's what I'm getting here. And I and I actually it's a little bit grainy, but I really don't mind it. It actually reminds me a lot of going through a distillery and and going through the the tanks where they hold all of their grain. And yeah. and I, I I totally get that, Brad. I it, I'm just I I think associating it with a different experience or a different memory. But it's not in a way to where it feels young or to where it feels like it's not characteristically an aged bourbon. It feels, right, right. It feels like that is just part of its greater components uh, yep. to, to where it kind of, you know, in, envelops some of these like chocolatier notes and sweeter notes. And um, I know that, that, that there is definitely a little bit of darkness that is present as well with this, but the, the nose is so unique when it comes to these Heaven Hill bottled and bond products that it's almost hard to believe that it comes from A, the same distillery and mm -hmm. B, the same price range that these other products yeah. are in. 
Yeah, we've been kind of blown away at the variation between like J.W. Dant, J.T.S. Brown, and now this because I feel like there are different levels, you know, even on the taste of like how oaky you can get. Uh, yeah. we, we talked about the subtle differences or the not so subtle differences between Dant and J.T.S. Brown just a few weeks ago on our Apocalypse Now episode. Brad, I don't know how much you remember of that tasting experience because we have had a ton of whiskey since then. But I mean, does this seem to be in the same wheelhouse to you or is this kind of its own thing? No, I, I think it is somewhat similar. Like, I, I'm not surprised that it's a part of the, I don't know, first last name initials lineup. Oh, don't get me very, <laughs> but, uh, don't get me wrong. It is very much a Heaven Hill product. But, oh, yeah. But it, it is different and it is, it is its own thing compared to the other, as you said, first last name bottom of bond <laughs> products in this line. <laughs> All right. So let's, let's score this out, guys. What would you give this on the nose? Uh, I'm at a six out of ten. It's really solid, above average. I I think I'm going to go just a little bit higher because I I think that it's got some some depth and complexity to it that these other bottle and bonds don't have. Uh, and I I almost like and prefer this introduction of this this kind of corny note uh, in some ways, but it's one that, you know, normally we would say, Oh, it smells like it's underaged or, but it it seems to be more, more inviting. I'm actually going to go with a 7.5. All right. Yeah. I'm actually going to give it a seven out of 10. And part of this is I am going into this knowing full well what the price is on this. And so for, (laughs) for the price, you, you could do a lot worse, right? So I'm going to give it a seven out of 10 and that takes us into the taste Guys, this is not a super complex bourbon. It is very corn forward. It is very sweet. It is not super viscous. It's pretty thin. It has a nice alcohol burn and it has a whole bunch of oak on the back end of the palate. It is classic cheap Heaven Hill. But I mean, it just hits all those great cheap Heaven Hill notes. Would I prefer this to Heaven Hill Green Label? No, Uh, but it's also 10 proof points higher. And again, like I'm not typically drinking this neat. I was not expecting much out of this. And this is actually a pretty pleasant drinking experience, Brad. Yeah. I mean, it's smooth. It's buttery. There's a little bit of vanilla. um, It's got the nice kind of sweet caramely notes that all kind of balance around this core of corn that kind of holds it all together. So, yeah, I'll give it a 7 out of 10 on the taste. For what you're paying for, this is a really solid pour. I think that it's pretty consistent between nose and palate. it might be losing me a little bit once I actually get to the taste of it. The The palate is definitely above average, but a little bit less well-rounded and a little bit less inviting than I would like for it to be. All that being said, I don't, <laughs> I don't not enjoy drinking this uh, <laughs> by any means. Um, it, it's, it, it, it's just a very solid palate. I, it sounds slightly negative. I'm going to give it a six though. All right. I'm actually going to give it a seven as well. Like I, I think again, 20 bucks out the door. This is pretty damn good whiskey. So, uh, that takes us into finish Brad. Again, there, there are not many like complicated notes to give here. And of course, when we just say things like it, it smells like vanilla. It tastes like caramel. There is corn. Like, People probably don't think we have very advanced palates, but honestly, that's really all that's going on here. It is a very basic bourbon, but it's also delivering on exactly what it promises. So you can't penalize it very much for that. 
on the finish, it is alcohol, it is caramel popcorn, and there is a nice Kentucky hug on the way down. And all three of those things check some boxes for me. I'm going to go ahead and give it a seven again on the finish. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think that for a lot of lower shelf whiskey, the finish is where you're going to lose me uh, because you kind of get that. I I don't know. I'm just going to call it like bottom shelf it's astringent. Bitterness. Astringent. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it just gets bitter and astringent at the end. And honestly, that doesn't upset me a ton. It doesn't destroy my finish score, but, you know, it, it's just the bottom shelf bitterness. So I'll give it a five and a half on the finish. Ugh. Um, I am not a big fan of this finish either. That being said, it doesn't keep me from wanting to go back for another drink, for another sip. <laughs> <laughs> my desire for alcohol still wins out in the end. <laughs> yeah, exactly exactly <laughs> but i mean like the the enjoyment of the palate itself is not to the point where i'm going i don't think i can stomach another sip of that this does not sound like a glowing endorsement perry i'm not gonna lie <laughs> here's the here's the thing here's the thing i i have so many different products that I think I would prefer to buy in this price range. That being said, this is still extremely solid for what you're buying it at. I think that a product like Wild Turkey 101 still is going to take the cake over this. Shoot, I'm jumping ahead. I'm sorry. I'm going to give a six on the finish for this one as well. All right, that takes us to overall balance. That's where we consider nose, taste, and finish as part of one kind of cohesive experience. Did something stand out positively or negatively that will affect, you know, the overall score here? I think this is really well balanced, Brad, for what it is. And the chief complaint that we had about J.W. Dant and J.T.S. Brown, and I'm going to confuse them, but one of them was too, you know, astringent. <laughs> one, one was too alcoholy. One was too over-oaked. And I think that this one, it has a considerable amount of oak on it, but it never gets harsh. It never gets overly bitter to me. That corn sweetness, which I think to some people might be kind of like cloyingly sweet. I actually think that it carries everything through very nicely. This is probably the most well-balanced of the three, in my opinion. So I'm just going to keep riding this wave I've been on and give it a seven again. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm right there with you, Bob. I, I'll give it a 7 out of 10. And this really, my other scores, I don't think I took into account the price range of it. I just tried to give as honest of a score as I could. But this one I'm looking yeah. at, I'm going, you know what? For 20 bucks, like the fact that they can give you a flavor profile that sits pretty much the same all the way through, great job. 7 out of 10. I, I got to agree with you guys. The, there is this note that the longer I sit with it, the more predominant it becomes and it's frosted Cheerios, which I'm, <laughs> hey. I'm a big fan of. I, I grew up eating those and you know, I, I don't have an aversion to them now as an adult. I don't totally mind the fact that there's some graininess uh, with this. I definitely don't mind the fact that there is a little bit of a more corn forward note. I do agree with you, Bob, that there is some oakiness uh, that is, pretty visible throughout the 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 sip itself i'm gonna go with seven yeah you I are i think it yeah hey <laughs> all right so that Bob's, takes us Bob's to sounded like he's telling me what to do there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah you are that's taken us to our value score now again 2099 for a handle of this perry i know like you 
I, I don't know if Wild Turkey's paying you yet to say what you do about the 101, <laughs> but we all know we all know how you feel, man. But I will say <laughs> a fifth of Wild Turkey 101 is $21. Yep. A handle of this is $21. And yep. like for the sheer quantity of liquid you get. Now I will say, I think Wild Turkey 101 is probably better than this. I would also be more hesitant to waste my Wild Turkey 101 in a, you know, a bourbon and Coke. Whereas this one is like, I have two liters of this. Like, hell yeah, Ooh. I'm going to put it in a bourbon and Coke. Do you wow. know what I'm saying? So, so I'm wow. like, I think that it is passable enough as a neat sipper. And it is also a no brainer to mix into your cocktails. And it is my, again, it's my preferred cocktail making bourbon at this point. You cannot find a better value in bourbon when you take quantity in consideration. This is a 10 out of 10 value. I got to be honest with you, Bob. I don't disagree with you at all. Um, mm. I I enjoy this whiskey so much when I drink it. It's been a it's been a long time since I've had it. I just but there have been other things that I you know preferred to grab, but I do find myself coming back to this with. A, a sense of enjoyment and a sense of almost rose-colored glasses. And once I do drink on it again, I remember why I loved it so much in the first place. And you're right. There is a little bit more value that might be found um, for some extra dollars. But... I, I think if you're just taking this at face value and you're taking it at the fact that it's a high quality product for the the price range that it's in, you're right. It's a 10 out of 10. Yeah, it is. All right, <laughs> Brad, <laughs> don't screw this up, man. I think it's a phenomenal value. I, like, I can't find anything wrong with this. 21 bucks for two liters of it is a hell of a price. And I will give it a 9 out of 10 on value. Oh, boo. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, what's that bringing everybody's final score out to? I am sitting at a 34.5 out of 50. And I am at a 36.5. I'm coming out to a 38 out of 50. I can't wait till we post this on Instagram because I love it. You know, like people, there's some people that do not overlap with listenership on the podcast and they just see our scores. <laughs> and I'm... I can't wait till like this gets a higher score than some super pricey product out there. And people are like, what the hell are they thinking? But yeah. uh, we <laughs> honestly factor, like we factor we value did, in. We just did Hancock. I think it was a few weeks ago. Yeah, and Hancock's I do not think president's reserve. Yeah. I don't think that that came out higher than this. No, actually I'm, I'm like 90% positive. It didn't. And again, at face value taken for what it is. I think I prefer this whiskey. Yeah. yeah I agree. Might be, might be the hot take of the day, but, uh, when you average out Brad's score and my score, we're coming out to a 36.25 out of 50. This is a no-brainer recommendation for me. It's not sold in every state, yeah. but if you happen to see it on the shelf, wherever you might be, pick it up. It's it Again, I'll say passable enough neat. It is a fantastic mixer. Uh, you will not spend a better $20 for the sheer quantity you're going to get. We often say that pretty much any whiskey, you can try it at a bar or buy some. I would recommend you do not drink this at a bar because you're going to pay uh, like it It will be the cheapest whiskey on the menu. And yet there's still going to be no point to drinking it at the bar. Just go no. buy a stinking bottle of it. 
it'll be much, much more worth your money. All right, guys. I am incredibly pleased with how this has gone. What do you say we jump back into talking about Almost Famous? I, I'm just oh, curious, Bob. How, how do you feel about our take on Almost Famous so far? Well, let's find out, Brad. <laughs> let's get to it. Right, so that was T.W. Samuel's Bottled and Bond. We're getting back into Almost Famous. Guys, I don't think there's too much more to say. I know we've kind of gone in a ton of different directions here, but I do think that there are points in this script where Crow's writing is really, really good. Like I said earlier, I think that there are points where the jokes and the gags really work, and there's some really great one-liners in this movie. So before I let you, you know, trash it with your final scores, I do want to (laughs) hear... What is a line that stood out to you? What was your favorite quote from the movie? You know, something you can throw out very easily as a successful <laughs> writing exercise by Cam Crow. I think one of my favorite lines from the film was when it's probably like the second time William sits down with Russell to do an interview and he just like rattles off like, do you have to be depressed to write a sad song? Do you have to be in love to write a love song? Is a song better when it really happened to you? And he's like asking all these questions and Russell just looks at him and kind of like grins and goes, when did you get to be so professional? (laughs) (laughs) And I just, I don't know why. I think that that line like embodies what Cameron Crowe was trying to go for with this movie. This idea of like this, this thin line of friendship and professionalism that William is trying to figure out and understand while he's being the more mature one in a group of all these adults. Like, I think that when the movie is at its best, it's in little moments like that. I have to agree with you, Brad, on that, but in a slightly different moment, and that is when William's mom says to Russell, Oh, dude. There, there's still hope for you. Mm. Yeah. That is such a weirdly poignant moment that you want to connect with in a way that makes you feel like you understand there are fleeting moments as a musician or as a member of the rock and roll community, right? Because that's kind of what it feels like that she is the... And I think that's a, a theme throughout the movie as well, that she's the 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 protective figure. She is the the one that they can always come back to for a sense of guidance and a sense of uh, understanding for whatever they, they might be going through, whether it's William or, you know, the different <laughs> members of the band who might uh, run into her throughout the way. But there is just this very poignant feeling of hope that comes from that that sentiment there there's still a chance for you yeah well damn now i'm gonna have to undercut your deep point with uh my silly <laughs> lines that i really liked from the movie but uh <laughs> well i but, did i did love eric stone street when uh he was 
relaying to to William that he had a he had a message from his mother, and he goes, "She's a lot." <laughs> William goes, "She freaked me oh, out." Uh, yeah, that's what <laughs> William goes. Yeah, I, I know, I know. <laughs> I think for me, the the lines that work the best are a combination of like, yeah, they're a funny line, but there's also really good actors that are giving really good line readings, and and two that really stood out to mm-hmm. me are in. That first scene where William is interacting with uh, Lester Bangs after he sees him at the radio station, they're like walking up a hill together and he's asking, you know, Patrick Fugit, what do you like the star of your school? And he says, no, they hate me. <laughs> and then Lester Bangs, Philip Seymour Hoffman, the way he just says, yeah, well, you'll meet them all again on their long journey to the middle. And there's just so much I love contempt that in the way he says that. I'm like, oh, God, what a great line. <laughs> and Brad, I think you were actually talking about the one line where he uh, he talks about being uncool on the phone. Yeah, I, at the very end of the movie, uh, he has this great line where he goes, "The only current," and it it honestly sounds like something that someone would say at like an '80s poetry night, and they're like snapping their fingers. But he, he says, <laughs> "the The only currency in this bankrupt world is what you share with somebody when you're uncool." It is just so poignant and so like true to life that like vulnerability is so underrated and like when you are vulnerable with someone when you are uncool with them that is what a healthy relationship is all about whether it's a friendship or a marriage or you know whatever it is like when you can be uncool with somebody and they're still down with whatever you have that you're throwing their way like that I just love that line. That resonated with me so deeply. Well, I think that sums up what the the major message in this movie is that despite the fact that there may be it's it's kind of a weird notion to to get into, but despite the fact that there may be social misfits, there is still a place for everybody. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I think that that's where this movie really does shine that, you know, we, we are all looking for a way to succeed and we are all looking for a way to, you know, find our purpose throughout life. Yeah. A, a, and place, a place to belong. Exactly. Yeah. There, there is very much a sense of, you know, as you grow up and even you know the 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 character of Russell who is you know in his late 20s early 30s still trying to figure out who he is as a person yeah um you know and and where does his person belong it that that is such a core theme to this movie that i i do have to give <laughs> i have to give him Cameron Crowe props for that i do have one more question for you guys before we get final scores and I, like, honestly, I want to hear your opinion on this. Sure. When I watch this movie, Billy Crudup as Russell is just uh, like electric. Like he, you can't take your eyes off of him. He is so charismatic, even as he's like, he's a dick for probably three fourths of the movie. And yet yeah. in so many ways, like obviously you're rooting for William, but at the end of the movie, his, his transformation is super believable. I think that that last scene that he and uh, William share in his bedroom is just just fantastic. And I just, I wonder why didn't he become a bigger star after this movie? Because like, this seems like if ever someone was primed to make a leap into superstardom, he is really handsome. 
He's tall. He has the physique of a guy that could be in an action movie. Like, and he just never really took off. He's he's had a really good, solid career. I was watching the movie Spotlight a couple weeks ago. He has a really great small part in that. He's obviously still working in Hollywood, but like never really took off. And to watch this movie, it it really seems like a missed opportunity that Hollywood never seized on this guy. So I, I don't know, like uh, Brad, this is your first time seeing him, I guess. What'd you think of him? Why, why didn't he become a bigger thing? Well, no, Bob, this is the second time I saw him. I watched this movie a year ago, <laughs> but, but it was the three hour version. True. Yeah. So yeah, on my second viewing of him, I, uh, I, I'm honestly right there with you, Bob. I, I thought that of all the performances in this movie that we've trashed, I actually really liked Billy Crudup. I, I wasn't like blown away by him, but I think that he has an ability to draw the camera into his face and the way that he can shift in emotions really gradually. Uh, I'm thinking specifically of the scene that you brought up, Perry, when he's on the phone with Frances McDormand and she is just delivering mm-hmm. this beautiful monologue, just just drilling into him. You see him transition from this like drunk, probably on drugs, like just kind of goofy, like I'm just messing with this old lady to like an actual serious consideration of her words. And, and I think it's moments like that where you're like, oh man, like Billy Crudup's got some acting chops. He, he can pull it off. Uh, it's, it's tough because I think that you're right. He does have a lot that is laid down for him in this movie. If we're taking this particular experience though at face value, I don't think that he was directed as well as he has been in other projects. I think Billy Crudup was far more successful, uh, and I can't believe I'm saying this, in the Justice League movie uh, mm. as Barry Allen's father. I think he was an incredible Dr. Manhattan in the Watchmen, in Watchmen. movie. Yeah. Yeah. I And I don't know if it's, you know, the fact that Zack Snyder under... Because, those, I mean, those are two... Zack Snyder vehicles, but I don't know if he understands Billy Crudup more as an actor, knows how to pull out what it is that makes him successful in roles, but I felt like throughout Almost Famous, Billy Crudup wanted to do something that was just slightly different from what Cameron Crowe wanted him to do. Mm. And it didn't diminish the overall quality of Billy Crudup's performance, but it did keep him from shining a light on what it is that he had to offer as, you know, maybe an A-list actor. He he is so talented, and I think he has so much more to offer. And I, I do really think it's a shame that he hasn't been more recognized. He does give, in my opinion, the best line reading in the whole movie, which is when he's at the the party where he takes a bunch of acid and he's just rambling on about like, in 11 years, it's going to be 1984. And the kids are like so drunk and they don't know what to say. And, and the guy just goes, <laughs> you want to see me feed a mouse to my snake? And he just goes, yes. Like, and the way yes, he I says do. yes, <laughs> it is it is the perfect line reading of of just the word Yes. Hollywood, get your stuff together. He needs to be in more movies. I think we've said about all that we need to say here with Almost Famous, guys. I want to hear your final scores. 
Perry, you are the guest. We'll let you go first. What what are you going to come out to out of 10 on Almost Famous? This is a really tough one for me because, again, I like the components that make up this movie. But once you put them all together, it doesn't feel like a cohesive experience. I spent so much time watching this thinking that is somebody who could have been directed better, that is somebody who could have been given uh, better cues or a, a better line that they could have had in that situation. But at the same time, there are characters that are so endearing and there are moments that are so inspiring that you can't help but root for the people that make up this movie. I don't know if I'm going to go back to this movie, ah, but it, there are still parts of it that I've really enjoyed. Overall, it was a pretty lackluster experience. I think I'm going to have to give it a 6.5 out of 10. Wow. All right. Perry has set me up for my 2 out of 10. I am so excited. <laughs> wow. No, I, no, <laughs> no. honestly, guys, I, I really enjoyed this movie overall. The, like you said, I think the great word that you use, Perry, is endearing. Like a lot of these characters are just really nice. And, and like I like seeing them win. And I, Bob, I think you pointed this out very early on that this isn't the real picture of most rock bands of that era because they were high on drugs for the majority of their time. And honestly, I don't think that filming people for almost three hours being high on drugs would be any fun at all. And so uh, with that nostalgia, with that kind of hopeful lens about what you would want it to look like, I don't know, it undercuts the seriousness of a lot of the situations and so overall, like I, I like moments in this movie. I like certain lines in this movie, but it's clunky. There's dialogue issues. Um, I, I think I'm with Perry. I don't know if I'd ever really come back to this movie willingly, uh, I, but I'll, I'm a little bit higher than him on it. I, I think I'll give it a seven and a half out of 10. So like I said, guys, I actually really love this movie. I think it's a great movie with flaws and like looking back at, at some of the people who reviewed it at the time, Roger Ebert loved this movie, gave it four stars out of four. He named it the ninth best movie of the 2000s, uh, really, like really loved this movie. I'm not quite there. And I think that I remember hearing about how great this movie was from, you know, critics and, and seeing the Oscars got nominated for. And I probably watched it like four or five times and I always enjoyed it, but it was never like a great movie for me. It was always like a seven and a half. And then one night I just like my wife and I wanted to watch something. I had the DVD. I put it in and like, I don't know what happened. It was like a magical movie watching experience. Every single thing clicked. She'd never seen it before. And like, we laughed at every joke. And, and it, for some reason in that environment, it played perfectly. And then I watched it again for the podcast. And like, I'm back to thinking like, this is very good, but not great. If you'd asked me when I watched it with my wife a year ago. I would have given it a 10 out of 10. Now I'm like, I can see the seven and a half. I think that for me, the thing that really stands out is how familiar everything feels in this movie. And that might just be because I've seen it so many times. And it might also be just because there are a lot of kind of cliched elements in this movie. And that's my big struggle is just, is it familiar because it is such a comforting homey movie that's very sweet? Or is it familiar because it's not super original? And so I think where I'm going to come out on this movie 
is is higher than both of you. I'm going to come out to a nine out of 10. I think that what works in this movie wow. works really, really well and works a lot better than, than maybe you guys think. Uh, but it's definitely not approaching like the upper stratosphere of great movies we've had on this podcast. But honestly, I want to hear what Film and Whiskey Nation thinks of this one. Brad's coming out to a seven. I'm coming out to a nine. That takes our average to an eight out of 10. Whoa, uh, whoa, what whoa. do you guys think? You can Bob. What? I gave it a seven and a half out of 10. Oh, I'm sorry. All right. So that takes us to what? At 8.25? Yeah. All right. don't, yeah. Don't you forget that point uh, That's right, man. So we want to know what Film and Whiskey Nation thinks. You can find us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Film Whiskey. Film Whiskey Nation can also call in, let your voice be heard on the Film Whiskey podcast. You can call us on our website, which is anchor.fm slash filmwhiskey. Once again, we want to say thank you to Perry from This Is My Bourbon podcast for coming on the show. Always a great time when Perry shows up. Perry, real quick, do you have anything you want to plug for the show, for the new YouTube channel, just anything you want to throw out there? Well, I just want to say thank you all so much for uh, bringing me back on the show. Of course, if you want to follow me on social media, it's at my bourbon pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. You can find the podcast itself on every podcatcher app that you already listen to, Film and Whiskey, on. Uh, it's super easy. I mean, just search for This Is My Bourbon Podcast. I don't, I don't know any other way to encourage you to do that. Uh, but in regards <laughs> to the YouTube channel, uh, you just head to youtube.com slash This Is My Bourbon Podcast. There is edited, produced content that goes up there now every other week. Uh, there should be, I believe, our uh, second video, our second edited video, I guess, uh, coming out either within the next couple of days or it's already out. I'm not entirely sure. Uh, it just depends on how much time I have over the next few days uh, to make that happen. But uh, we are also on the road to a thousand subs, uh, which is going to be huge for us. It means that we're going to be able to monetize the channel and uh, we're also be able to uh, make a little bit of money during our live streams. I hate to talk about money, but it's important. There it is. Yep. Uh, also, <laughs> patreon.com slash podcast for as little as a dollar a month. You can help support the show for five bucks a month. You get bonus content like the pregame chats, which come out before every episode. And you also have early access to all of the YouTube videos. I think that's all for my plugs. All right, man. Well, don't forget about the Film and Whiskey Patreon while you're on the subject. If you'd also like to contribute directly to the podcast, you can give at our anchor.fm slash film whiskey website. We'll be back next Monday looking at the 1952 Western classic High Noon. But until then, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>